Luke chapter 10. I'm going to start reading in verse 25. Um, I'm sure most of you are probably familiar with this passage. This is the story of Jesus fielding a question from a lawyer. And um, there's probably not a more learned group of people that Jesus interacted with here than the lawyers. Um, He interacted with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers, the scribes. But here's a lawyer that's going to come to Jesus and he's going to ask a couple of questions. And I want to look tonight at how Jesus answered these questions. So let's look at uh, chapter 10, starting in verse 25. It says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up, Notice what the next word there is, and tempted him. So these questions were not uh, asked in a manner that was just out of curiosity or even out of learning. It was something that was asked to test Jesus, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, notice how Jesus responds here, what is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. If you're familiar with Jesus' teachings, this lawyer had done his homework. He knew that this is what Jesus taught. And so he answered the question according to Jesus in the next verse. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do and thou shalt live. But notice what the lawyer doesn't stop here. He goes on in verse 29. But he, the lawyer, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, another question, who is my neighbor? The lawyer just wouldn't give it up. So he asked a question to test Jesus. Jesus responded by asking him a question, which the lawyer answered correctly. The lawyer responds again with another question, and now Jesus is going to answer the second question by giving a parable. The lawyer's first question was, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' answer, what is written in the law? How readest thou? The lawyer's second question, who is my neighbor? Jesus' second answer is the story of the Good Samaritan. I want to look here first at the motive of the lawyer. In verse 29 it says, But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? This, if you notice, this very question that the lawyer asks indicates that he did not love God with his whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. How do we know that? Because we know from John 3.16 that God so loved the world. And so if this lawyer were truly in love with God, with his whole heart, soul, mind, and everything, he would not ask this question. He would be um, loving everyone he came in contact with. But we see a glimpse into the lawyer's heart. Galatians 2.16 says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. By the way, in this passage here, he says, the, um, the narrator says that the lawyer was wanting to justify himself. But Galatians tells us that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. 
And so this lawyer, he is trying to elicit an answer from Jesus that is going to justify himself. But yet, we know from the Bible that no man is justified by obeying the law, but only through the works, or only through our faith in Jesus Christ. But this interaction between Jesus and this lawyer reminds me of the interaction between Jesus and the rich young ruler. Remember, the first step to salvation is understanding that we're sinners and we need a Savior. And that's where Jesus was leading this lawyer to. You are a sinner. You do not love everyone. You do not love God as you say you do. And I'll prove it to you with this parable. Notice the perspective here um, in verse 30. It says, And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. So Jesus uh, starts into this uh, story of the Good Samaritan. But he, he says here, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jesus does not define the person helping as... Um, the person helping is defined as the neighbor by Jesus, not the person that needs help. See, the lawyer started this question with the perspective, who out there is my neighbor? And Jesus completely flipped the perspective on the lawyer and said, it's not about who is your neighbor, it's about how are you neighboring the people you come into contact with. So the lawyer is looking for who qualifies as my neighbor. And Jesus says, it's not about who qualifies as your neighbor. It's about how did you neighbor the person that you last came into contact with. The person helping is defined as the neighbor by Jesus. Not, not the person being helped. The person helping in the, in, the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan is the one who's the good neighbor. Not the person um, who, is, who needs the help. Jesus recasts the lawyer's question from who is my neighbor to who am I neighboring. And you see that at the end, and we'll look at that in a minute. One, the way the lawyer phrased the question, it's a duty to be fulfilled. Jesus recasts it as a heart condition that overflows from our relationship with God. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 that's the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit isn't concerned with the limits of love. And that's where the lawyer came from. He said, now who's my neighbor? I want you to quantify who my neighbor is. Is it everyone who looks like me? Is it everyone who lives in a certain geographic area? Is it everyone who has a certain need? Is it everyone with a certain characteristic? And Jesus said, it's not about what the neighbor is, it's about what you are in your heart. As a matter of fact, Galatians, where the, where the Holy Spirit lists love as one of his attributes, he says, against such things there is no law. In other words, against such attributes like love, there is no limit. There is no boundaries you put around it. When we have love, we don't ask questions like, well, who deserves it? Uh, when we have that characteristic, and that's what Jesus was focusing on here in the, in the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, the opportunity. Often we do not get to choose, as we read through this parable, we do not get to choose the time or place that is most convenient for us. Look at what he says here in verse, um, verse 31. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way. 
See, if we're trying to define who we're going to help and we're trying to set the boundaries of who deserves my love and who deserves to be my neighbor, then we're not ready for the unexpected. We can only handle what I've planned for today. Well, this person's bothering me. You know, this, I wasn't expecting this problem. I wasn't expecting this person to present this problem to me. And when we, we are looking for a definition of who our neighbor is, instead of trying to define ourselves as being a good neighbor, that's when those people bother us. Here in verse 31, Jesus says, and by chance. This wasn't a planned interaction. This wasn't like, okay, Friday at 3 p.m., I'm going to go help this person who is my quote-unquote neighbor. This is, I'm going about my daily business, and now all of a sudden someone needs me. Are they my neighbor? And Jesus said, don't think of it in that context. Think about it in the context of what type of person are you, not who is that person that needs your help. Opportunity is universal. It is not dependent on our occupation, our family, or our nationality. Look at verse, um, if you read through these verses 32, uh, 33... It says, and likewise a Levite, there's a family, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. If you look in verse 31, it says, a certain priest that way, went that way. There's an occupation. Um, But if you look at verse 33, but a certain Samaritan, there's a nationality. Jesus said it doesn't matter. We don't define who we're going to help by these superficial characteristics that we place on people. There is no identifying attribute, by the way, given to the one in need. You can search through this uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. It's called the parable of the Good Samaritan because the Good Samaritan was the good neighbor. But you know, there's no characteristic ever mentioned of the person who needed help. It doesn't tell us where, uh, what family he was from. It doesn't tell us who his parents were. It doesn't tell us what nationality he is. It's just a person. Apparently, those type of characteristics are irrelevant when it comes to our definition of who we're going to help as a neighbor. Notice the difference between the Samaritan and the other two. Luke 10.33 says, But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. When he saw him. You know, all, the, all of them saw the situation. Matter of fact, if we, if we uh, read through there, um, it, uh, let me see if I have that here. If you look at um, verse 31, it says, There came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, and likewise a Levite, when he was at that place, came and looked on him. But a certain Samaritan, when he came, he saw him and had compassion. The difference between the Samaritan and the other two was the compassion that was in the Samaritan's heart. The difference was not education. The difference was not status. The difference wasn't even opportunity. They all were presented with the exact same opportunity. And the difference wasn't similarity. It wasn't like the guy on the ground was, well, he's more similar to that guy, so you know that's more his type of person that he helps. Um, That wasn't the difference either. The only difference was the compassion that was in the Samaritan's heart. When our love increases... It affects everyone around us. You can't help it. It affects everyone we come in contact with. That's why we should beg and ask God every single morning, every single day, God, fill me with your love. It's one of the the defining features of a disciple of Jesus Christ is our love. 
It's one of the Holy Spirit fruits of the Spirit, is love. We should, we should um, beg Him to show His love through us. Compassion, by the way, it changes our motives. It changes our perspective. And it also changes all the opportunities that we have. So many times I'll, I think to myself or I'll talk to somebody and say, I wish I had an opportunity to be more involved in ministry. I promise you that if we as Christians get up each morning and say, God, fill me with your love, it's amazing the opportunities that come our way because our eyes are more opened and we have compassion like the Good Samaritan had. It, the priest probably got up that morning and said, I want to do something for God today. I'm going to go, I know exactly what I need to do. I need to get to the temple. I need to do this, 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 and this. And when I do all that, I will have done my work for God. But he forgot to ask God for compassion that morning. And because of that, he missed the opportunity. The Samaritan, he had the compassion. And so he had more opportunity. Notice as you read this story, there is a cost, though. In verse 34, uh, the Samaritan went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Being a neighbor always has a cost. And also it requires us to meet people where they are, wet, where they are at. Notice what it says there in verse 34. In, uh, in the, very, the first four words, and went to him. Very, li- uh, very seldom does a person come to us. We almost always have to go to them and exhibit that compassion that's in our heart. Um, we see here, though, that it cost him. Being a neighbor requires us to meet people where they're at. People need help with the wounds that they have suffered in life. They're everyone walking by us, everyone that we interact with, every person at the grocery store, every person that uh, we have a business with, that we have dealings with, every single one of them is a human being that has been hurt and needs a Savior if they haven't met Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that everyone we come in contact with we're going to be able to give a full plan of salvation to. But it does mean they should sense something different about us than the last customer who came through and treated them indifferently. There should be a compassion that we have that the rest of the world doesn't have. Uh, Being a neighbor carries a cost. Notice here in verse 34, he pours in oil and wine. Those things are not cheap. Being a neighbor demands personal sacrifice. It's so easy for us, uh, it's so easy for me to say, well, you know what, I'll just off, I'll, um, off-source that, what is it called? Uh, what is it? Oh, outsource, that's right. I'll outsource that to the church. You know, I'll make sure I get them to a place where someone can take care of them. But notice here what the Samaritan does. He put him on his own beast. He took a personal interest. It cost him his personal time, his personal money, his personal resources. Um, Being a neighbor is inconvenient. This good Samaritan was on his way somewhere, and yet he made an unexpected, unplanned stop at an inn to drop this guy off. And not just drop this guy off, but to spend the night with him. Um... Being a neighbor cannot be outsourced to others. I just, took, I just said that. It says that he took care of him. Our service to God, giving through the church, having a position in the church, 
is not enough to satisfy personal interaction with people and individuals. We can't just say, well, I put in my time at the church, therefore I don't interact with people out here. The church does that on my behalf. And we see here that Jesus said, if you're going to be a neighbor, if you're going to have true compassion, you're going to have to get your hands dirty, you're going to have to get involved in people's lives, and it's not going to be easy, convenient, or cheap. It's going to cost you. In, in verse 35, we see here, and on the morrow, so he spent the night there, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. I'm not contradicting myself, but at the same time that we have to get our hands dirty, we can't do everything. We do have to pull in resources of people who can help us as we help other people. It's not that we outsource it and say, I don't want to get my hands dirty, you take care of it, I don't want to see that. It's we help as much as we can, but understand that it can't all fall on us. We're just human also. And so we see here that he employs another person to help him help this man. We can't do everything. Few people will have the same burden, by the way, as we do for a situation. And so trying to get other people... You know, it's interesting to me, the Good Samaritan here, he's taking money out of his pocket. He's putting the guy on his own beast. Um, He's pouring in his own wine, his own oil. But when it comes to the innkeeper, the innkeeper just didn't have the same burden. He's like, you're going to have to pay me for this room. And it's going to be two days' wages. That's what two pence were. We should not be frustrated when other people don't have the same burden that we have for that person. He didn't say, you know what? I just took an unexpected journey here to your inn. I just spent all this money on this guy, and now you're expecting me to pay for your services? Don't you see the burden I have for this person? He didn't. He said, okay, I'll pay you. You do what you can for him. I will not expect you to have the same level of compassion that I have for this man. By the way, it will almost always cost more than we anticipate. Look at what those last few words there are. Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, whatsoever thou spendest more, and there will be more, Um, I gave you two days' wages. Probably when I get back, he's going to need more than just that. When I come again, I will repay thee. So Jesus gives this whole parable. He gives this whole story in answer to this lawyer's question. But notice what Jesus says here at the end of the story. It's time for Jesus to ask the questions now. In verse 36. Which now of these three, he's talking to the lawyer, which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? Notice what Jesus does here. I said it at the beginning, but you see it here again. The lawyer begins with, who is my neighbor? Define it for me. Tell me, who is my neighbor? Draw the circle around what my responsibility is. Jesus tells the story and then he comes back to the lawyer and says, which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor? See, the lawyer said, of, out of all the people in the world, you tell me which ones I'm responsible to help. And Jesus flipped it around and said, no, 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 no. You are the neighbor. 
Everyone else is the beneficiary of your neighborly compassion. It's not the other way around. Jesus reframes the initial question from the lawyer. Instead of who is my neighbor, looking for someone who meets the qualifications of a neighbor so I can help them. Okay, you're my neighbor, you're not. You're my neighbor, you're not. You're my neighbor, you're not. This is what the lawyer was hoping for. Jesus says, Jesus asks, to whom have I become a neighbor? Who qualified themselves as a neighbor by helping another? Was it the priest? Was it the Levite? Was it the Samaritan? That's what Jesus said. So who is my neighbor was the wrong question from the very get-go. The lawyer asked the wrong question. But Jesus was very patient. He answered his first question with a question. He answered his second question with a parable. And then he rephrases his question and asks the question correctly to the lawyer. To whom have I become a neighbor? That's the right question. And then Jesus concludes the entire thing in verse 37. And he said, He that showed mercy on him, the lawyer said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. Being a neighbor requires action, not just reaction. He said, Go. Go out there and be the neighbor that you were hoping that I was going to define for you but you're going to define it yourself. Mercy. He said mercy. Not giving people what they deserve. It's an essential part of being a good neighbor. You know, primarily, we are not called to enact justice on people. Every once in a while, we are. Because God gives us different areas of authority. I'm a father. Some of you are fathers. Maybe you've been given authority at your job. Maybe you've been given authority even in civil government. Maybe you've been given authority in different areas of this life. Then we are called, according to the Bible, if you read Proverbs, God loves justice. God loves judgment. But by and large, we are not called to go out into the world and enact justice and judgment, except for the limited areas that God has given us jurisdiction in. And here he said, go show mercy on people. Go give what they don't deserve. Um, that's what Jesus did for us. The lawyer's question focused on another's qualification for being a neighbor. But Jesus, he focused on our actions of becoming a neighbor. By the way, this whole interaction begins in, uh, in that first verse by the lawyer looking for eternal life. You, know, you notice, now we all know that this, the way the question is, ans is asked by this lawyer, he was not truly interested in eternal life. He was testing Jesus, and he was trying to justify himself. So we know there was some underlying um, motivation here in the question that the lawyer asked. But he does ask in verse 25, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him an impossible answer. You're to or the lawyer gives the answer, but Jesus says, that's right. You love God with all your heart, soul, mind, you can't make any mistakes. <laughs> you, have to be, you have to be perfect in order to have eternal life. And we know from reading in Galatians that the only way to attain perfection is to have Jesus Christ's record put on ours. He was bringing that lawyer to the point of saying, you cannot attain this. You think you have. 
You think by asking these questions that you're showing how smart and intelligent you are and that somehow you think you've deceived me as the Savior, but I'm telling you, I'll expose you to everyone around here that you have not attained to the level of perfection that you think you have. And because of that, um, he brought him to the point where, he, where the lawyer realized, you know what, I, I look like the fool for asking these questions to Jesus. I was going to tempt Jesus, and Jesus turned it around. And he answered him correctly, but then reworded it. Um, you know, as many of you know, um, I teach here in the school. I also help oversee the school. And, but working with teachers and students, they love to ask questions. But we all know the difference between a student who asks a sincere question, which, by the way, Jesus got many of them. Nicodemus is a perfect example. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. He asked almost the exact same question. And Jesus answered he took so much time to answer Nicodemus. It's where we get John 3.16 from, that interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. But here, we have a lawyer come to Jesus, and we've all been in situations where someone's asking us a question, not because they want the knowledge, not because they want to do what's right, but because they're testing us, they're tempting us, and they're justifying themselves. And we just have to be careful as we come to Jesus and ask him questions, as we deal with people who have questions, Let's be sensitive to, to uh, being a person who is pursuing truth, not pursuing our own justification. Uh, as we ask questions, questions are not bad, questions are not wrong. Jesus took many, many questions. But let's make sure that our heart is one of pure pursuit of truth, of love, of compassion, of trying to be a better Christian, not trying to prove ourselves um, that, uh, that we know something that maybe we don't. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll move on to the next session. Father, thank you for loving us and for all that you provided for us. Thank you for your word that you've given to us. Thank you for the answers that we have, that we can apply them to our life. And thank you for the perfection of your truth, um, that there's no spot, there's no wrinkle in it. It's all perfect for us to apply and to use on a daily basis. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, thank you.